Well, challenging and difficult does describe the book of Jeremiah. And some of you took me up on that challenge. I've been spending the last four weeks working your way through Jeremiah. And this is our last Sunday in that longest book of all of Scripture. So for those of you who made it through all, congratulations. If you haven't made it that way, you still have time. You can spend the whole summer getting through there if you wish. But this morning we conclude our series on Jeremiah. And so it's fitting that we read the end of the story. Uh, So take out your Bibles with me. Turn to Jeremiah 52, right at the back of the book, page 667 in the Bibles you have in front of you. Jeremiah 52. Jeremiah now has spent his life as God's prophet, warning the people of Judah and the city of Jerusalem about their impending destruction if if they continue to ignore God. If they continue to ignore his warnings about, about rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar, right? The, the king, the world power to the north. Now, after all these years, the year 587 arrives. And this story does not end well. Listen to the first 16 verses of Jeremiah 52. Then you want to keep your Bibles open for continued reading later. Jeremiah 52. So Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. His mother's name was Hamital, daughter of Jeremiah, different Jeremiah than the priest, by the way. She was from Libna. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as Jehoiakim had done. It was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah, and in the end, he thrust them from his presence. Now Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon, which is exactly the opposite of what Jeremiah had been telling him all those years, right? He rebelled against the king of Babylon. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. They encamped outside the city and built a siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the city wall was broken through and the whole army fled. They left the city at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden, through the, though the Babylonians were surrounding the city. They fled towards the Arabah which is the desert. But the Babylonian army pursued King Zedekiah and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered, and he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced sentence on him. There at Riblah, the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. He also killed all the officials of Judah. Then he put out Zedekiah's eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon, where he put him in prison till the day of his death. On the tenth day of the fifth month in the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, commander of the imperial guard who served the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem, Every important building he burned down. 
the whole Babylonian army under the command of the imperial guard broke down all the walls surrounding Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar, the commander of the guard, carried into exile some of the poorest people and those who remained in the city along with the rest of the craftsmen and those who had deserted to the king of Babylon. But Nebuchadnezzar left behind the rest of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and the fields. The next couple paragraphs talk about how they, they took everything of value out of the temple. The second paragraph then talks about how they took every royal official and put them to death. And then the second half of verse 27 puts the sad period at the end of the story. It simply says, so Judah went into captivity away from her land. Right, so all the warnings that Jeremiah had spoken all came true in 587. And it was as horrible as he had predicted to the people, right? Sitting comfortably here this morning in our air-conditioned room, I don't think we can fully comprehend, even though we just read it, I don't think we can fully comprehend the horrors that God's people experienced here. I mean, this, what we just read, was wholesale devastation and slaughter from kings to commoners alike. There was not a family in Jerusalem that was not affected by death, right? The, the Babylonians surrounded the city, laid siege to Jerusalem for so long. They think it was about 18 or 19 months for so long, not letting anything in, anything out, that starving mothers were resorting to cannibalism to keep their children alive. And when the city finally falls, as we read, anyone who is of any value gets marched off hundreds of miles across the desert to Babylon where they're captives in a foreign land. And on top of all that horror, the bloodshed of the battle as well, they lose their connection to God, right? They've been God's people all these years. And Jerusalem and the temple has been their connection, a physical connection to God, a spiritual connection to God. And the temple gets crushed the temple is torn down, destroyed, and gone. All the articles of the temple are gone. There's nothing left between them and their connection with God either. It was a physical devastation. It was a spiritual devastation. It was an emotional devastation. 587, it's grief on every level. Brokenness in all of life. I don't think we can comprehend the pain and the sorrow that the people of Jerusalem went through here. But we certainly can relate, can't we? We certainly can relate to the brokenness and the grief through our own 587s in life. Because there are significant parts of our own lives that should bring us to our knees, that bring us to tears. And many of you here this morning have shared your 587 moments of life with me. Some of you, I know, are in the middle of them right now. Others of you are still living with the devastation of your 587 moment that maybe happened years or decades ago, right? And, and you're, still, you're still reeling. Right? The diseases that some of you are enduring are reason for tears, 
The people that some of you have had to say goodbye to through death. Parents, children, siblings. Death is a reason for tears. The financial strains you've gone through. The emotional strains you've gone through. The dreams that you've had that have died. The depression, the abuse, the injustice, the friendships that have broken apart. They're all reasons for tears and you've cried them. You're still crying them today. There's a lot in this world, and there's a lot in our lives that's broken and worth mourning. And through Jeremiah, at the end of this tragic story, God gives his people permission to cry. You may not realize it, but when the book of Jeremiah is over, when you finish reading through the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah's voice is not done speaking. Because all evidence points towards the very next book of the Bible, the book of Lamentations, being written by Jeremiah as well. In fact, turn over a few pages to Lamentations chapter 3, page 672. You see, the book of Lamentations... If you've ever read through, it's another, another difficult book and another one that's not going to make you smile a whole lot. Because Lamentations is a series of five long poems. And these poems mourn, they're, they're full of grief over the destruction of Jerusalem, over the destruction of the temple that we just read about. It's a response to the, this 587 moment that Jeremiah witnessed in the 587 moments in our own lives as well. We don't read from Lamentations very often because it's not very encouraging. And, and honestly, we don't like suffering much, do we? We don't like to talk about it. We don't like to think about it. We prefer just to ignore it, move on. Well, the book of Lamentations gives voice to the nation of Judah's immense grief and despair, while at the same time giving us a voice for our grief and our despair as well. It gives us permission to cry because we see that God does not hide from the sorrows and the brokenness and the pain in life. He writes it right here in the middle of his book. He, he writes it here to be remembered, given to us to help process our own. In fact, often if you see pictures of Orthodox Jews praying at the Western Wall in Jerusalem, it used to be called the Wailing Wall, now called the Western Wall, often they're reading the book of Lamentations. Good Orthodox Jews will read this book every year on the anniversary of the fall of the temple. They keep coming back. They don't forget. They don't ignore the pain. They come back to it again and again. So if we had a, if we had a western wall, a wailing wall that you could come to when you needed to, what would you bring there? What does Lamentations teach us about our own 587s in life? Well, look at Lamentations chapter 3. It's the central text in this book. Begin with just the first 20 verses, that first column on the left there. Here's what Jeremiah writes in reflection to 587. I am a man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. 
He has made my skin and my flesh grow old and has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. He has walled me in so I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I cry out, when I call out or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has barred my way with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. Like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in hiding, he dragged me from the path and mangled me and left me without help. He drew his bow and made me the target for his arrows. He has pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became a laughing stock of all my people. They mocked me in song all day long. He has filled me with bitter herbs and given me gall to drink. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped for from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Pause there for a moment. Those are some harsh verses, aren't they? There is no attempt here in these 20 verses to gloss over or minimize the pain and the sorrow that Jeremiah experienced for all those years, even before his 587, and then through the destruction, right? There's no flowery, flowery religious platitudes to try and whitewash the ugliness and the pain. This just hurts. In these 20 verses, we hear a righteous sorrow at all the brokenness in his life, at all the brokenness in this world. Jeremiah sees his sorrow, he names his sorrow, and he's honest about his pain. And that pattern continues all throughout this book, right? There, there's laments all throughout the Bible. Jesus isn't exempt. Jesus laments. He laments the effects of sin in his creation that he loves. Right? He's filled with sorrow. He, he cries when he sees death. He's hurt by the disease and the broken bodies and the broken spirits that he sees. And God gives us permission here. In fact, he instructs us to have a righteous sorrow. To let the tears fall in our 587 moments of life. He gives us permission, as Jeremiah did here, to shed tears in our own suffering. Right? You probably recognize some of this as, as Jeremiah mourning his own sufferings over the years. The ways that he's been abused, the ways that people have, have attacked him. His life did not turn out the way that he had hoped, right? You sign up to be God's chosen prophet and you think blessings are going to come your way. You think good things are going to happen. You got God on your side. Surely you're going to succeed. And he failed. 
He's a prophet who failed to turn the hearts of the nation towards the Lord. God told him right at the start, you're going to fail. It's not going to work. But don't you think for Jeremiah to move ahead through his ministry, he had to in the back of his mind think, yeah, I think maybe I'm going to, maybe, maybe we can totally lost the nation. They didn't turn towards God. And Jeremiah, even though it looks like he wasn't present when Jerusalem fell, if, you, if you're reading through in chapter 43, it looks like he's, he's kidnapped earlier and carried down to Egypt. But even if he wasn't there, he still lost everything personally, right? He lost his home. All the homes are burned to the ground. He still lost his city. He still lost the temple. He's a prophet. That's where he connected with God too. He lost everything that was his. And so Jeremiah sheds tears here for the suffering that he is experiencing. He has permission to cry. Jesus sheds tears. He cries in his wilderness. Remember when he's, when he's kneeling in the garden of Gethsemane just before he's arrested? He is weeping. He's crying. His heart is filled with sorrow. He's begging God if there's any other way. I don't want to do this. The Apostle Paul, he weeps before God at this thorn in his flesh. They all show us that we don't have to always be strong. We don't have to always tough it out. We don't have to always have the right answers. That I think God is saying, don't just gloss over and give in to the brokenness in your life without feeling, without expressing a righteous sorrow. Because this is not the way it's supposed to be. Shed tears in your 587 for the hurt that you experience. But also, in addition, shed tears for the suffering of others around you as well. That's what Jeremiah does in this section here. He, yes, he's, he's hurting for himself, but he's hurting on behalf of the whole nation as well. His heart hurts for this community that, that experienced this destruction that's been hauled off into, into captivity. It's a communal lament over the brokenness of this whole world. Right? And again, Jesus does that same thing. He hurts and he sheds tears for this world and the people in it that he loves as he as he marches into Jerusalem, knowing he's going, to, going there to be crucified and to die, remember there's that passage where he's, he's looking over the city of Jerusalem in all its glory from the hill on the other side of the valley, and he weeps. He cries not because of his own suffering that's coming, but he cries because he's deeply hurt for this city filled with people who are lost without God's grace, who are broken. And he enters, as he lives his life, he enters into the painful places with the people around him. He suffers right along with those around him. He cries with them. He hurts with them. His heart breaks for them. The brokenness of our lives and the brokenness of this world around us, it deserves our tears. It deserves our sorrow. And God gives us this book of lamentations to help us cry to help us shed tears, to help us give voice to our sorrow. 
So, so think about this for a moment. When, when's the last time that you cried? When's the last time your heart hurt deeply for the brokenness you've experienced or the brokenness in the world around you? For some of us here, that question isn't hard to answer because maybe it was this morning. Maybe it was just yesterday. Because you're hurting deeply and you can't help but cry. Others of us are probably still sorting through our memory bank trying to find out when's the last time we cried. Maybe because we've been taught not to cry. Maybe because we've been taught that that you shouldn't experience that hurt. You keep that hurt hidden inside. Don't look weak. Good Christian people don't cry, right? Because you trust God. And so that means a tear is, is a betrayal of God. And so we've learned to, to throw out the religious platitudes and to hide the tears. But God tells us there's so much in this world that's worth crying about. It's wrong not to cry at the refugee explosion. It's wrong not to cry about cancer and Alzheimer's and other diseases. It's wrong not to cry when there's war and genocide and rape. It's wrong not to cry about racism and sexism and abuse and divorce and greed and pornography and death. When we see and experience the brokenness and pain that sin has ushered into this world, God invites us to cry right alongside of him. Because this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Lamentations gives us the words to cry. But I'm so thankful that Lamentations 3 doesn't stop at verse 20 and doesn't leave us overwhelmed by our tears. I'm so thankful that God not only gives us instruction and permission to cry, but that he also gives us reason to hope. He gives us reason to hope even in the middle of our 587 moments, right? So Lamentations 3 moves us from this righteous sorrow. It moves us to a humble hope. It gently turns our eyes, right? Jeremiah focuses our eyes on our sorrow. He says, be honest about it. Look at that. That hurts. That's painful. That's broken. That's ugly. Look at it and admit it. But then he moves our eyes back to God's faithfulness. I, I, I just find it an amazing twist of irony that it's from the middle of this book of lamentations, this book of tears, that we find some of our most treasured words of hope. We sang them earlier. Right? Remember we just sang, great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness. Lord unto me. Okay, those words. Those words of great hope that have carried Christians for generations. 
You know where they're from? They're hidden right here in the middle of Lamentations. Verse 21, right? The, the writer has just spent 20 verses reciting through his tears the pain and misery of his life. And then he says this, 21 through 26. Yet I call this to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. I don't believe it's by accident that the book of Lamentations, this collection of tears and sorrow, holds one of the most precious verses of hope that we know. Because isn't it often in the middle of our tears and sorrow, in the middle of our suffering and our pain, that we finally, that we finally give up relying on ourselves and our own strength and our own ability, and that we finally turn our eyes towards God. We finally put our trust in Him. We're finally able to come to Him with empty hands. And we find out what it means to receive His mercy and His grace. Right? So in the middle of Jeremiah's terrible sorrow, he calls God's truth back to mind. Right? He forces himself in verse 21 to take his eyes off of this sorrow, take his eyes off of this pain, and turn his eyes back towards God again. He refuses to allow his tears to block his sight of God. And that's God's invitation to you and to me as well. Right? God gives us permission to cry through our hurts and in our sorrows, but he doesn't want us to stay stuck there. He invites us to call God's truth to our minds as well. And he reminds us that he, our God, is still present right in the middle of our 587 sorrows, bringing us the strength and the hope that we so desperately need. And did you notice, did you notice as we read that, those verses, the characteristics of God that we are reminded of in the middle of this passage, right? So in verse 22, in verse 22, we are called back to God's great love. Okay, Jeremiah, in the midst of his brokenness, remembers God is love. And it's God's great love that keeps us from withering up in our desert places. It's God's great love that as broken as things might be, refuses to let Satan have the final victory. It's God's great love that sent his, son, his own son Jesus into this broken world to redeem that brokenness and fix that brokenness and bring us salvation victory. It's God's great love that promises us in the middle of our difficult lives that he will never leave us, that he will never forsake us, even when we feel like he has, he still hasn't. Okay, and it's, 
is that assurance that is boldly declared in verse 23, which calls us back to God's great faithfulness. His faithfulness that shows up every morning and gives us just what we need to make it through each day. Isn't that a beautiful image of God's grace? It's as regular as the sun rising every morning. You can count on it. You can plan on it. You can rely on it. Especially in the dark places and dark times of life. That's why we get to that third characteristic. That's why we can then share in the great hope that verse 25 tells us about. The Lord is good to those who hope in him. To the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. We have hope. It is in the painful places of life that we so often meet God because it's there that we finally wait quietly for him, right? The, the rush and the busyness and the other priorities of this life finally pale, finally get set aside and we wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord because we have no place else to turn. It's there that we're forced to rely on him and he's there bringing us hope. It's interesting as I looked at those three words. Maybe you already did it in your mind, but rearrange the order a little bit. And my guess is I can bring your mind to a different place. Instead of, instead of love, faith, and hope, you say it, faith, hope, and love. My guess is your mind goes back to another life-shaping passage in Scripture, right? 1 Corinthians 13. It's a beautiful passage that, where the Apostle Paul declares, now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Those three characteristics come back again. Why? Because those three characteristics are the pillars upon which we build our lives. They're the pillars upon which we build our faith lives because they are the, they are the characteristics of God. They are what God brings. And we find him there. It's who Jesus is, right? Faith, hope, and love. Jesus is God's faithfulness to us, proven once and for all, given again and again. Jesus is God's hope for us, demonstrated now on an empty cross and an empty tomb. And Jesus is God's great love for you and me, wrapped in human flesh, delivered not only to our world, but delivered to your heart and to my heart. And so the truth that the writer of Lamentations is pointing to here, way back in the Old Testament, he's pointing to Jesus. That that truth that's all wrapped up in the Son of God who meets us and gives us strength for every moment, gives us comfort for those painful times. And so when we as New Testament believers keep our eyes through the tears, right? Keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Then we wait quietly and confidently for the salvation of our Lord. And we know that that salvation, that that victory comes in spite of what we feel. In spite of those tears that cloud our eyes, in spite of the sorrow, in spite of the doubts that are real and honest, in spite of our pain, in our 587 moments, along with Jeremiah, 
We call to mind our God. We call to mind Jesus. And we find hope. Jeremiah here. He forces us to be honest about the world around us. And he forces us to be honest about ourselves. Because you know it. Our 587s are real. They're out there in the world. They're right here in this room. You know it. I know it. We've all felt it. The pain is real and sometimes it seems like it is just going to be overwhelming. And that brokenness is enough to sometimes shake us and shake our faith to the very core, isn't it? But as followers of Jesus Christ, we do not give in to the suffering of the world, right? We experience it, yes, but in the middle of it, we hold on to a hope because we have reason to hope. Because John tells us that when Jesus arrived, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not and will not overcome it. The darkness will not overcome it. God has promised that he will bring light into our dark places. He will bring water into our desert places. He will bring peace into our turmoil. He will bring victory into our struggle. He will bring strength into our weakness. And so in the middle of our 587 moments that we are there, we refocus our eyes and we see the empty cross. We see the empty tomb. And we remember that, that we are walking the path that Jesus himself has already walked. And so, yes, the sorrow and the pain is real, but so is the victory. So is the victory that is ours. In Jesus, we hear God saying, this won't last forever. This will not last forever. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. So, yes. Please, in all honesty, go to God with your tears. Cry at the brokenness of this world and of your life. There are moments that deserve tears. But through your tears, catch a glimpse of hope. Of the joy that comes in the morning through Jesus Christ. There is hope that is born when we see and when we experience God's faithfulness and God's love in the middle of our 587. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we would so prefer that you would make us exempt from the pain and brokenness of this world. We would so prefer that you would answer our prayers to take away our pain, to take away our suffering, to take away our sorrow. We would so prefer that you would look at the brokenness in this world and the brokenness in our lives and you would just fix it. And yet we realize that you haven't promised us that you would take away every difficulty in our lives. 
But you have promised us that you will never leave us and that you will never forsake us. You have promised us that your mercies will be new every morning and that you will be faithful. You will faithfully be by our side, giving us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. You have promised us that even though obviously not all things are good, but you have promised us that you will work all things for good for those who love you. You have promised us that we will never be alone. And so, Father, I ask that you give us the courage to come to you with our tears, to be honest with you, and maybe if we dare even with each other about our sorrows and the injustices and brokenness of this world and of our lives. Because this isn't the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way you created this world to be. Give us that kind of courage. And yet through our tears, never let us miss seeing the empty cross, the empty tomb, the hope that and assurance that those bring us. The confidence that victory is ours. Satan doesn't win. And someday all wrongs will be made right again. Father, I can imagine that there are some even in this room here this morning that still find it unbelievable that there can be hope in the midst of the brokenness of life. Touch those hearts, Father. May your spirit move to give every single one of us a clear picture of the victory that's ours through your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. We're going to take